Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Dr. Marianne Miller. Marianne is an eating disorder therapist and binge eating coach who supports clients through eating disorder recovery. Marianne joins us today to share the truth about binge eating disorder, to dispel the common myths and share some tips for kickstarting your recovery. Hello Marianne. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. It's um, nice early Monday morning and San Diego, oh. California. <laughs> <laughs> what time is it with you? Did you say it was like half nine? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So your day is just starting and my day has just finished. <laughs> I know. So weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. It's amazing. Like, I don't know. Obviously, there are time zones and I get that and my brain can deal with that. But when I'm like talking to somebody and I'm like, how is it morning for you? I don't understand. I know. Like, it's so bizarre. <laughs> Yeah, it was really, really weird. <laughs> yeah, I had um. So the the company that I work for, I do like client calls, and we have we had a client. The sponsor was in, I think, like West Coast America, and then the client was in, um, uh, somewhere in Australia, and the best time was like seven thirty in the morning for me, half eleven at night for the American, and then six p.m. for the Australian, and it was that was the best I like went online to like see which there was like an app that would tell you the best time and that was the only one in orange which apparently was the best it's a, it's amazing I think that's just our new reality you know yeah. it is our new reality it's really bizarre yeah absolutely now we can like now everything's online um, I know it's and great. it allows us to do things like this for us to connect Yay! and record podcasts together which is awesome um so I guess to start us off, we're talking about binge eating disorder today. So mm-hmm. would you mind explaining to us what it is? Sure. Um, so binge eating disorder is a diagnosis for people who binge eat um, at least three times a week for at least three months. And binges are typically considered um eating a large amount of food you know compared to like um typical people who don't eat this large amount of food in a very short amount of time so eating the large amount of food typically quickly in a relatively short amount of time um and it's uh these binges occur outside of um holidays or big festivities that people tend to eat a lot of food. So for example, we just had our American football Super Bowl Sunday and oh, nice. um, a week a week ago and um that is a big eating day in the US. Like there's all kinds of specific foods that people eat. And so that like people eating a lot during that day would not constitute a binge. Uh, binges typically happen by, you know, in isolation. Um, people hide <laughs> the binges. And then they also uh, struggle with a sense of, you know, overwhelming guilt and shame about uh, eating that large amount of food. And then it also um, comes with obsessive thinking about food, eating, and body image. Preoccupation and obsessive thoughts about food, eating, and body image. Yeah. Now, thank you for giving that overview. And I'm really glad that you highlighted the sort of aspect around um, binge eating disorder isn't just like having a one-off occasion where you eat a lot of food in a day because I think the like society often uses like oh I had a binge this weekend or whatever um when you maybe just ate more than you would on a typical day but there's so many other aspects related to it and 
one thing that I thought was interesting that you said, and I completely agree with, by the way, uh, but isn't in the DSM-5, which I always think is strange, is the, um, I can't remember the specific word you used, but like the thoughts around body image and weight, because mm-hmm. I always find it um, bizarre that like anorexia and bulimia both say like your evaluation of self is based on weight and shape. And to me, from the people that I've spoken to that have been due to disorder, that's still there. Um, oh, yeah. But it's not there in the DSM-5, which I think is, I don't know, to me that's almost, uh, we're going to get onto the myths in a minute, but I feel like that's a myth in itself that needs to be gone. <laughs> I agree, because I, I have been working with eating disorders for almost 11 years, and I have never treated anyone with binge eating disorder who has not had um, the uh, you know, preoccupation with food, eating, and body image is always there, you know, for people who meet the diagnostic criteria for binge eating disorder. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I guess just before we come on to the myths, you said that you've been working in um, eating disorders for 11 years. So why did you decide to specialize in this area? So um, it was really two paths converging. So the first path is that um, I'm recovered myself. Uh, I had an eating disorder of some sort, some iteration of an eating disorder um, ever since I was about like seven or eight years old. And so, um, you know, sometimes it looks like anorexia. Sometimes it looks more uh, bulimia in, in terms of I overexercise to compensate instead of um, instead of purging. Uh, and then at the very end, uh, for several years, it was full-blown binge eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So it, that was there. And then I became recovered myself. And I felt like just how amazing recovery is. And I wanted to share that with other people. Um, so that was that aspect of it. But really from a clinical perspective, I was working with a lot of people with chronic pain and a lot of them had disordered eating symptoms. And so what I did was um, I was a full-time professor at university there uh, in Southern California. And I ended up um, sitting in on a class at one summer that was an eating disorders class and I read all the textbooks and I soaked in all the research and I realized this is amazing. I totally want to do this. And I felt very nervous because I had stayed away from eating disorders um, for many years as a therapist because I myself wasn't recovered. And so I remember at the time I was talking to my own eating disorder therapist and I said, I don't know whether I should help people <laughs> in this because uh, um, of my history. And she just looked at me straight in the eye and said, Marianne, you've lived it. And I said, oh, oh, okay. And it has helped my lived experience. Although most times I don't disclose that I'm recovered, but just, I get it and I get the struggle and I get the mental anguish around it um, that I can really convey that I understand and I, and people resonate with that for sure. So, um, so when I decided, yes, I want to treat eating disorders in my clinical work, I um, was able to um, attend the University of California, San Diego Eating Disorders Center um uh, trainings that they have um because it's one of the top eating disorder centers in the world and I was just very fortunate that I live here and I have access to that and so for three years I went to and got training from them and then um I for one year I was supervised by um like someone who was had been an eating disorder therapist for many many years and because I really, it was very important to me to know the research well, to get excellent training, because eating disorders are so complex to treat. Um, and so, uh, so as I began to really focus on my practice, um, 
focused on eating disorders in my psychotherapy practice, I was very ready. It was felt like I was very well trained and I knew the complexities of uh, how to treat it. And I love it. I adore my work. Like I'm so passionate about it. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant to hear. And I think, like you said, that element of, you know, you've lived it and you can empathize with that. Like you're never going to know exactly what is going on for somebody or what it feels like. But I think having that lived experience does give you that sort of added layer of um, of understanding. And I think also like that passion for it as well. You know, you've been there yourself and, and you needed that help. So kind of, you know, you want to give that back to people. Um, but it's great that also you are so passionate about, you know, really knowing the research and, and understanding that um, to make sure that you're given the right sort of treatment and care for your clients. So that's really lovely to hear. Um, Thank so you. when I, when we decided to do this podcast, I reached out to the listeners because um, we had discussed like, you know, talking about some myths and things like that. So we've got some myths and then also some questions from the listeners. But I wondered, you know, if we wanted to go through these myths. So I'm just going to, you know, say before we start this, that this is not what I believe uh, in the slightest. But I think that it's really important to have these discussions because, you know, often I think people can be sitting with things and then not want to say it out loud. Um, so to actually get the facts is really, really important. Um, so the first one, I've kind of got two that are quite similar. So I'm going to merge them together. Um, so binge eating disorder is just an excuse for people who are greedy and people just need to stop eating so much. Oh boy, that's very cringy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and believed by many, many people. Mm -hmm. So definitely a myth. Um, so eating disorders are brain disorders. So uh, a lot of researchers have conducted fMRI studies of the brain, so brain scans, to show that when people struggle with binge eating disorder, when they have binge eating disorder, and they compare the brains of people with binge eating disorders to the brains of people without binge eating disorders, they find that there are areas of the brain of people with binge eating disorders that aren't functioning as efficiently and as effectively compared to people without binge eating disorders. And so um, it, it is 100% not people's fault when they develop an eating disorder. Um, they actually, uh, their brain is wired to get more pleasure from food than um, uh, people without binge eating disorder. Um, and sometimes it can feel like kind of a rush, you know, when they eat the food. And then a, a study came out last year that shows that um, even at, in elementary school, or would that be primary school, you know, the first one to yeah, first grade, yeah, to uh, like primary school, elementary school, um, they found that um, brains of kids with eating uh, binge eating disorder are different. There's actually more gray matter in those children's brains compared to brains of kids without um, uh, eating disorders. And, and as children's brains develop, the uh, gray matter needs to be kind of like pared down, like kind of like how you pair uh, an apple or a, a pair <laughs> you know you kind of like carve out you know pieces of it or pair off the peeling of it um that's what needs to happen to the brain and it doesn't for kids with binge eating disorder so for people say to say that it's just for people who are greedy or lazy um that is a hundred percent inaccurate uh, binge eating disorder is a brain disorder it's not people's fault that they struggle with this. Um, it was, and they've likely had it since they were kids. And also there's a huge um, genetic predisposition, biological predisposition for people who develop um, eating disorders. They've conducted tw twin studies. And in if there is an eating disorder in one twin, identical twin with the same DNA, 
there's up to an 82% chance that the second uh, twin will have an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And so, in, so the way that I see it is that people already have the biological predisposition. They're born with it. And then environmental factors can flip the switch and cause people to develop it. And for some like teens and even some adults I worked with, it was the pandemic that triggered um, it. And it can be things like trauma. It could be family, even like having a, a very diet culture saturated family system. Um, it can have, it can mean like a bad breakup or bullying. I mean, uh, growing up, many medical traumas, like many different things can flip that switch. Yeah, that's so interesting what you're saying about the gray matter. Like, I think, you know, people often don't think about the structure of the brain and how that's going to impact it. And I guess a question I have is you mentioned like um, individuals will get more reward from food. So is that similar in a way to sort of like an addiction or would food addiction be different to binge eating disorder? That's a great question. Um, So I, I don't, I don't see food addiction. I don't see um, binge eating disorder as an addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, I see it as a dysregulation. Mm. So um, because with an addiction, like to a substance, for substance abuse, what qualifies as an addiction is if you build up increased tolerance to a particular substance like cocaine or alcohol, like you need more of it over time to get high. Um, and it's, and so that's not the case with food. Like food is not designed to, you need more of it to get that rush. Um, and it's, it's a lot more complex because with binge eating disorder, there's the binge eating cycle where if people struggle with binge eating, that means some sort of restriction has taken place. And that kind of restrict binge cycle just does not exist when it comes to substances. It's just a completely different animal. And then also with food, you have to have food to survive. You do not need alcohol to survive. You do not need cocaine or heroin to survive. Um, And so you have to completely change your relationship with food and heal your brain through treatment um, in order to be able to eat regularly and not binge. And the way that the great thing is that because of neuroplasticity, um, because the brain can grow and develop even at, even in midlife or and older and at more mature ages, the brain can grow and develop. And so, um, because of neuroplasticity, you can create new neural pathways and so change your relationship with food and change your relationship with your body. And so it's just, I, I just don't see it as an addiction. And I think it, it's very reductionistic to see it that way because it's just, it's just incredibly complex because we have to eat food to survive. Mm-hmm. And so to say we're addicted to food, like we're kind of all addicted to food because we all have to have food mm-hmm. to survive. So I don't want to see it or villainize food in any sort of way. And that's kind of, what using the term food addiction does in my mind. Yeah, I think often um, because I've read quite a few studies recently that talk about um, it always seems to be when when you read in the literature, I, I mean, it's not always, but I've seen it more often than I haven't is binge eating disorder, obesity and food addiction are just like thrown together in a in a bucket. And it's it they, there's never sort of any effort to distinguish between them um and I think this is just my kind of theory behind it is that often when we're doing research or talking about anything we almost want to have something that when you said like reductionist reductionistic is that how you say mm-hmm. it? I don't know how you say it. Mm-hmm. um 
we always try and simplify things and I think mm-hmm. because rationally like I I um you know I'm I'm not an addict but I think there's more understanding about how you could potentially be addicted to drugs and alcohol than maybe there is to something like binge eating disorder or if we're gonna say food addiction or whatever so I think people try and kind of say oh you know binge eating disorder is a food addiction because we can almost comprehend what an alcohol or um a drug addiction is it's almost like they're more not normalized that's not the right word but um the more accepted that that could be possible whereas I don't know whether it is because we have such a diet culture obsessed society that it's just like binge eating disorder is a negative thing therefore I can't I just can't understand it uh, I would say a lot of what you said is accurate. Um, I think, uh, in addition to that, um, diet culture really wants us to uh, villainize food and see that food is the issue, and that's not mm. true. There's nothing wrong with food. You know, uh, there's no moral value. And in recovery, the goal is to get people to a sense of food neutrality where um they just see all food is as you know neutral food is food is food there's not good bad food and bad food there's not healthy food and unhealthy food there's not junk food and clean food um it's just food and i think people want a a very reductionistic answer like they want to see certain foods as bad like Sugar is a big one. Sugar, they call it sugar addiction, carbohydrate addiction. And so what that does is that the multi-billion, trillion worldwide dollar diet culture um, and wellness culture, they they want to convince you that these foods are bad so that you'll buy their product that doesn't have sugar, but really it, it has the fake sugar, which is actually worse for you <laughs> and can cause can mess with your hunger and fullness cues. Um, and it can cause, um, you know, say, buy our product, sign up for our program. You can't do this by yourself. You can't trust yourself. Mm. That's the bottom line. And so that's why I just, one of the many reasons why I cringe at the word, the term food addiction, because it's, it, it's, saying food is the problem and if you tell people that food is the problem then that just perpetuates the belief that they can't trust themselves around food mm-hmm. and recovery is is the exact opposite you want people to be able to trust themselves around food you want people to be able to have whatever food they want in the house and not feel like they're going to lose control around it and that is the whole pr- that that's the whole aim for binge eating recovery is to help people with that. That I wanted to comment on, right? You know how they tend to group binge eating disorder and obesity. So the reason for that, in, in terms of the research, they group the two. The reason for that is that um, it it all has to do with money. I mean, I don't know about like the UK and Europe or other places in. Uh, you know, in the world, but in the United States, there is so much federal money, grant money poured into obesity research. And so, and there is comparatively very little money funded for binge eating disorder. So in order for researchers to get money to conduct their research, they sometimes have to couple the two. And that's any true eating disorder researcher or eating disorder professional will say binge eating disorder and obesity they're not um it's not a pairing there are plenty of people who would qualify as quote obese um not a fan of that term myself because again it's been villainized um uh it uh, and they there are plenty of people who on the BMI would qualify as obese who do not have binge eating disorder. Many, many people. 
And there are many, many people, including many of my clients who have binge eating disorder who would not be categorized as obese. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, you cannot judge whether someone has any type of eating disorder, including binge eating disorder, based on their body size, based on their weight. It's just, you can't. That is a myth. Um, yes. And the research is, is very, um, it's very political, too, um, in the United States. It's, it's, more, uh, it's more politically acceptable in the medical system to study obesity because they point to obesity as the problem for many health issues when that's not the case. <laughs> like, really, if you dig deep into it, um, obesity, there's many other components that can that um, affect people's health outcomes way more than obesity does, but it's because our society is so saturated in diet culture, you know, the medical system points to obesity. And my guess is the same in the UK. And so, um, and that's just not true. Like weight, weight is truly not an indicator of health. There are plenty of people with lower BMIs who are very uh, in poor health and people with higher BMIs who are in fantastic health. Um, so that is my podium. <laughs> I'll stay on it. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, I mean, one of the myths that I had to, to debunk with you was that everybody with binge eating disorder is overweight. And I think you've absolutely knocked it the nail on the head to say that, you know, somebody with binge eating disorder can exist at any size, as can, you know, somebody that is overweight may have binge eating disorder or they may not have binge eating disorder. It's, it's like any eating disorder it can you know you can't look at somebody and just automatically know what eating disorder they have um but another one that you kind of touched on slightly that I wanted to come back to um was that binge eating disorder recovery which I think this always shocks people um binge eating disorder recovery means going on a diet yeah that is um often what people believe and um Diets uh, don't work. Um, many researchers have found that um, is and because it's because they're not sustainable and they actually um, create glucose deficits that can lead to people binge eating. And sometimes these people like can sustain a diet because I've I've had many clients who've gone on the keto diet. Is that a thing in the UK? Sadly, yep. Yeah. Yep, maybe just yeah. explain what it is, just in case people don't know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the keto diet is a very high-protein, low-carbohydrate, or you know, as low as you can get carbohydrate diet. Um, and that is, uh, an, it's a very unfortunate diet because we need carbohydrates for brain health. Like that is, carbohydrates is literally how our brain functions. And so what I see is my clients who have been on months on low carbohydrate diet, they come in and they're an absolute wreck. Like their cognitive functioning has been uh, compromised. They're, um, they're highly, highly anxious. They're struggling with depression. It severely affects their mental health. And so as, as soon as we slowly start adding carbohydrates, it is like, night and day in terms of their cognitive functioning improves, the anxiety goes down, the depression goes down. We need, we need carbohydrates to fuel our brain. And so, um, so that is an example of a highly restrictive diet that has been very difficult for uh, people to sustain. And when they do, it can have real detrimental effects. And, and what can happen is people can go on it for several months and then they get into such a, their body goes into starvation mode that um, they end up, you know, developing a very serious binge eating disorder where they just can't stop themselves because their body is like, do not do that to me again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Their body knows, our bodies 
are so like amazing and intelligent and they know what they it needs they need to do to survive and so after having been had these food restrictions for so long they they're like okay we're not doing this again so we're going to get as much food as possible and so what happens over time and researchers have shown is that it's the weight cycling right so people are on these diets and they lose lose a bunch of weight on the weight and then it, they can't sustain them because it hurts them mentally and physically they can be feeling dizzy they can just feel terrible and then so what they do is um they end up compensating for those months and months on the severe diet and then end up binge eating um and and then they regain the weight in some cases um again every case is different because everybody is different um but uh, i don't i look less at weight and more on behaviors so if people have are in a very restrictive place for so long because they're dieting and then they move to a place where they're binging clearly their body is telling me we need to be nourished and so so we're focused on reducing and eliminating the binge eating. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point that you were saying there. And something I was actually having a conversation with somebody about last week in terms of, um, again, when, I, I mean, I, I think that the diagnostic criteria for binge eating sort of needs rewriting. I'm now coming to realise I when agree. I say this, but um yeah we were talking about bulimia and binge eating disorder and it was really interesting how you know in the um binge eating disorder diagnostic criteria it says like episodes of binging with the definition but not the compensatory behaviors that are observed in bulimia but one of the compensatory behaviors that could be observed in bulimia is fasting and restriction and you know i think maybe not everybody i don't know i've 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 not met every single person with binge eating disorder but most people that i speak to when they have binge eating disorder the binges occur after a period of prolonged restriction correct you're absolutely correct um there is restriction so it can be restriction of food intake and it can be restriction of uh eliminating certain foods in what they eat Mm -hmm. so for example if someone doesn't eat very many carbs during the day, then at night they binge on carbs. That's because their brain and their bodies are telling them, we can't sustain this, um, you know, low carb thing. And so in the evening, we're going to make up for this. And, and it's so, <laughs> and what happens is that literally the first bite people take of carbohydrate, it's, their brains and bodies are like, oh, it's like they feel the sense of relief. And that's part of the the pleasure that, um, that people feel is that they've been restricted for those foods and they get this, um, uh, they get pleasure from um, eating foods after they restrict. Have you heard of Julia Child, the cook? She was very, she was an American cook, um, chef, and she, you know, studied in France and lived in France and she passed away many, many years ago. Um, but she, her, her phrase says that hunger is the best sauce because (laughs) when you're really hungry, (laughs) food tastes better. And so, Mm. yeah, so people who binge eat, they make themselves very hungry, uh, and so food ends up tasting better. And if they do that enough over time, it changes the brain. This is my hypothesis. And people get more pleasure out of food. Now, I think that's the the um, nurture part of the nature versus nurture. I think people are with binge eating disorder are genetically predisposed to get more pleasure from food anyway. But this just makes it engaging in those behaviors makes it worse because when people get into recovery, what they find is 
when I eat these foods that used to give me so much pleasure, I just don't get as much pleasure from them. And I said, yeah, that's kind of what you have to uh, adjust for. And then there's a little bit of grief. It's like, oh, I kind of kind of miss the rush. <laughs> I miss I miss that. And it's like, yeah, and recovery still feels better. And then there's they say, oh, yes, of course. It's so much better. I feel so much better. But sometimes I miss the rush. Did I answer your question? <laughs> I think I lost. I went on a bit of a tangent. <laughs> I don't know whether you did, but I, I want to respond to what you've just said. And I yeah. think this is, um, like, I'm going to cringe when I say this because I, <laughs> again, I just want to, I just want to say before I say this, but this is not what I believe. Um, but I think that there are so many myths around binge eating sort of, and a lot of, um, judgment so I'm gonna say it and, and bite my tongue because if everyone could see me right now I'm gonna chop my head in my hands because I really don't want to say it but I, I'm gonna because this is what I've been spout so you were saying about like restriction and um you know people with binge eating disorder they will restrict all day or, or however long and then they it comes to the evening and then they'll binge so isn't binge eating disorder just like anorexia with less willpower because somebody with anorexia would be able to resist the urge <laughs> if everybody can see her face <laughs> you're just cringing uh uh yes I, I appreciate the cringe um i uh no um because with people with anorexia also have the biological predisposition to get more pleasure out of restriction. So, and researchers have proved that many times. And so people with anorexia, they get a dopamine boost. Dopamine is one of the pleasure chemicals of the brain. So they get a dopamine boost from restricting versus people with binge eating and even bulimia get a dopamine boost from binging and so it's just different brains they a lot of eating like UCSD University of California San Diego um, calls it under controlled versus over controlled I don't like those terms because I think it kind of comes with a lot of judgment so over controlled is the anorexia and under controlled is the bulimia and binge eating and their um, hypothesis behind that is People who are over-controlled, their emotions tend to be more locked down, and uh, and it's, sometimes they have a, a more difficult time accessing their emotions. And versus people who are under-controlled, their emotions are more expressed and overt and and um, all over the place. And so, in both cases, there's emotional dysregulation. They just present differently. I just don't like the terms over-controlled or under-controlled because when it comes to eating, eating disorders, it's really a uh, an illusion of control. It's not really controlled because it's really the eating disorder that's controlling you, you know, in many ways. And uh, you're not in control, <laughs> although mm -hmm. it's a perception of control. And then it all goes back to diet culture and the... Um, privilege of thinness, the privilege and the um, the holding up and idealization of thinness. And so anorexia equals thinness in many people's brains. Although nowadays there's a lot of people with atypical anorexia who aren't thin um, and have all the anorexia symptoms. And so, except for the weight one. So I think in addition to binge eating disorder diagnostic criteria, I think anorexia diagnostic criteria needs to be uh, addressed. And so, um, so when it comes to, um, when it comes to binge eating disorder is just anorexia with no willpower. Again, it's a brain disorder. It has nothing to do with willpower. And any sort of shaming and judgment around that is just, um, it, well, first it's horrible and it's just not helpful because 
what can perpetuate an eating disorder? Shame. And there's, when it comes to binge eating disorder uh, and bulimia too, is there's just so much shame. And the more shame that people experience, the more they're going to fall into this, into the binge eating cycle and not be able to escape. And it's a, you know, I, I, I just get so angry at um, the, the shaming and the marginalization of people who struggle with this. And um, because it's just going to perpetuate the problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I have so many things I want to say in response to that. So I'm going to try and calm down and just ask one at a time. Um, but, um, firstly, I'm going to try and go in chronological order. Um, so we, you were saying about obviously they're they're different. They're brain disorders. Um, you know, they're, they're different kind of ways that affect the brain but you mentioned at the start that you in your own experience kind of transitioned from kind of more anorexic tendencies to bulimic tendencies to binge eating sort of tendencies so is that because you also mentioned about neuroplasticity is that do you think because of that you know your brain can change and adapt over time or is there another reason you think that that might have happened that's a great question um I think it was less of about my brain changing I mean I'm sure that was part of it but really there were external factors that affected that so I grew up in a very diet culture family in in that um the food was very restricted at home um I think in on TikTok they're calling it ingredient only households <laughs> where there's just not much food stocked up in the pantry mm-hmm. and uh and you only have food that you need the ingredients for because the message that you get from parents is that you can't handle yourself around the food and the parents can't handle themselves around certain foods. And so that's the household I grew up in. Um, You know, we basically had rice cakes and (laughs) vegetables and some fruit and certain like, quote, healthy cereals. Um, and very little else. Um, and so, uh, uh, I just didn't have access to a lot of it until I would go to friends' houses or parties where I would, there would be like goodies, like cookies or cakes or candy. And I would just, um, go, I would eat a lot of it because it wasn't accessible. And so, uh, so the restriction was very, ingrained and then and then I was sent the message that I needed to lose weight not by my pediatrician this was uh, by my family of origin um and so I um went on diets very young starting at like seven eight years old and then those continued to where middle school when I was going through puberty um I was dieting and I actually my period stopped um, you know, for, and then, uh, it really wasn't until my, I got my driver's license at 16, uh, that I was able to have access to foods that outside of the home. And that made a huge difference in my ability to eat those foods. But then I would like oscillate between binge eating and kind of rebelling against my family to restricting where I was more um, in line with what my family wanted me to do. So I would just go back and forth between those two extremes. And, um, and that's what would happen. And then it wasn't until really, uh, it was just a bit, I, I, that's how I kind of existed. Um, And then it wasn't until a little bit after I graduated from um, undergraduate university and uh, some things were happening in my life. There was a lot of stress and that's when I started over-exercising uh, as a compensatory behavior. And that's what took off until um, several years later that lasted through my graduate school. And it was like a month after I got my PhD, I injured my back 
because of the over-exercising and I can no longer exercise. And then that's when it morphed into binge eating disorder. So it was like the result of the eating disorder behaviors in, in, a, in addition to contextual um, factors. And it's just quite common for people's eating disorders to change and morph. Now, it doesn't happen with everyone, but it, you know, for people who have it, like for me, like about 25 years, um, it's not surprising that mind changed and morphed, especially given, you know, contextual factors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and actually, that was a question that um, we had from the listeners. I'm going to kind of merge two questions together, but it was asking that does the you know duration of an of an eating disorder so maybe having a longer eating disorder um and then also if you transition from let's say anorexia to binge eating disorder or, or whatever way around do either of those elements mean that recovery is less likely more difficult or is it kind of they don't have an impact i would say that if people have different um like eating disorders, iterations over many, many years. I have not seen any difference between that and people who just have one eating disorder. I think the, I think the only thing I, difference I think I've seen that in is when people have been purging for many decades. Mm-hmm. There's just something about the purging um, that, people just get very very used to and it becomes difficult for them to stop and so um there's just something about the act of purging that gives them the sense of relief and release and um sometimes even people kind of get a little high from purging um that people feel like they can't cope unless they purge and so or sometimes they can't even eat unless they purge so I think people who have been purging for many decades it just takes um you just have to be in good treatment a good a good uh solid treatment with qualified individual to um and a qualified team you know, um, to help you. And then there's also like a lot of like teeth problems um, and um, that can come with that and a lot of GI problems. And those can come with anorexia as well. But uh, purging especially is is very difficult um, for that. So I think the longer anyone has an eating disorder, the more of an effect it has on your body and on your brain. And it just takes longer to recover because it didn't develop overnight. So you're not going to recover overnight. And so it's important to be patient for with yourself and patient with the process and to trust the process when you have a team you're working with. As you and I have talked on um, an Instagram live that you and I did a few weeks ago, um, if people run into a relapse, um, sometimes that is just part of people's recovery story. It doesn't make them a bad person. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't mean they've suffered a moral failing. It just means that that was their recovery journey. And I I tell my clients that's just let's just see this as a learn as a way to learn and grow more, um, so that your recovery is, is even more solid this next time, and so that you can be you can really create you know these relapse prevention. Um, create relapse prevention, um, you know, coping strategies and a mindset and just like the sense of groundedness of, yeah, this recovery is solid and nothing's going to knock it off its base. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's definitely the sort of um, mindset I'm taking at the moment is that like, you know, a relapse is, is not failing in the slightest. Like you said, it, it might just be a um a message to say like okay things seemed like they were okay but they're not actually quite okay and like you said let's take this time to really build a solid foundation implement really strong coping mechanisms so that 
that eating disorder isn't something that's attractive to maybe fall back into um years down the line and something else that I've really noticed especially recently is really building that identity up outside of eating disorder recovery because I think it's very easy to be like I'm in recovery and then your identity is still an eating disorder because you're in eating disorder recovery um and for me that's something that I'm really like trying to focus in on is building my identity outside of that so that I'm not kind of passively you know I don't see the podcast as this but when I worked in eating disorders for me personally it was like a way to have an eating disorder without having an eating disorder was to work in eating disorders I'm not saying that's the same for everybody but for me Mm -hmm. I hadn't done all the healing that I needed to in order to get to a place where I could work in that place and not be like well I want that but I can't have it so I'm gonna kind of um practice it in in different ways um so I think yeah that's a really good thing to kind of vocalize that recovery is totally possible um for everybody no matter the eating disorder or the duration of illness um but it it just takes work and it's it it takes a lot of kind of you know battling with those inner demons in your head um but it can be done Yes, absolutely. It can be done and it is possible. And recovery is a beautiful, wonderful thing. And and sometimes that's the case, like you were saying in your situation, sometimes people think they're recovered and maybe there's just some things underneath the surface that either weren't attended to or maybe, you know, your brain and your body weren't ready to attend to. You know, sometimes trauma can come up as an issue with, you know, sometimes people realize, oh, I have this trauma issue and it was kind of buried six feet underground and now it's coming to the surface and I just didn't know it was there. And so it's triggering some of the eating disorder symptoms again, or there's contextual issues like I'm going through a divorce or, you know, my child is having a long, uh, you know, a difficult time. Then that kind of re-triggers the eating disorder. And again, it's not moral failing at all. It's just part of your recovery journey and more, you know, for you to learn. And for you, you're, you're doing such amazing job helping people through this journey and really validating their experiences, even their relapse experiences. Mm-hmm. That, um, I think that there's, uh, you know, this just deepens, uh, I imagine it the amount of compassion and deepens the understanding that you have, which will help people. And so if we look at our own journeys, you know, as me being recovered as well, like I've gone through things that, that will continue to help me help people. And that is my calling. That is my purpose. And, and I see that in you as well, because of what you do in your podcast and your Instagram, whatever. So yeah yeah absolutely well thank you that's very kind of you you're welcome um, <laughs> and then just to um finish us off um, on the subject of recovery so i'm going to merge two questions again um from two different listeners but one of them was kind of like what kind of treatments or interventions have you seen within your clients that um have like the best outcomes which personally I think it's completely individualized but you might be able to shed some light on that um and then the the second aspect of that question is regarding medical treatments prescribed for binge eating disorder um have you heard of any do you think they're worth a while or not so um I'm going to answer the second question first medical treatments as in medication okay so uh in, in the United States, um, Vyvanse, which is an ADHD medication, has an FDA, a, a Food and Drug Administration, a regulatory board in the U.S. They have approved Vyvanse for um, binge eating disorder and uh, because it's a stimulant and it, um, it makes you, uh, it affects your hunger and fullness cues. So really you don't feel hungry very much. And so, um, so what it does is it uh, treats the symptom, but not the roots of the problem. So when people stop taking Vyvanse, it comes rushing back. 
because one of the areas of the brain that um, affects uh, people's ability, you know, that affects that that is different in people who binge eat compared to people who don't binge eat has to do with the area that regulates hunger and fullness. That is all out of whack. And so in order to recover, you need that brain but if you're taking Vivant part of your brain and but if you're taking Vivant you can't heal that part of your brain because it further dysregulates your ability to uh, uh, for to regulate hunger and fullness cues that said sometimes people are suffering so much from binging they just need a relief to get stabilized with the the idea that this is not going to be a permanent solution, and so, so sometimes it's just like let's give you some some initial relief, and then slowly work on the coping skills so that we can start cutting down and eliminating the Vivant. Now, um, the new medication it's Oz Ozempic girl. I forget the name of it, Ozempic or something. It's um, a diabetes medication. This is the new thing that everybody's taking um, to lose weight because, again, it's an appetite suppression. It has not been FDA approved for binge eating disorder. It's been FDA approved for weight loss. So, again, anything you do to suppress your appetite will affect that area of your brain that regulates hunger and fullness. And so, again, that saying you can't trust your own hunger, hunger and fullness cues. And so the goal of binge eating disorder treatment is to get people to learn how to trust their hunger and fullness cues. And so it is vital, vital for people to be able to learn how to do that. Um, but some people just want to lose weight so badly that that's what they'll do. But again, you get off of it and then the problem can um, rush back. Plus, there's a lot of other side effects that people have to deal with. And then the first question was, remind me what the first question was. Um, the best like interventions and treatments Intervention. that you've seen. Okay, um, I agree with you in, in that it is very much needs to be tailored to the person. Absolutely. I would say though, people in fat bodies can and many times are undernourished. Eating regularly and consistently is vital to recovering from binge eating, and we call it mechanical eating, and it really is the foundation of binge eating recovery. And what that means is eating regularly and consistently throughout the day, every typically every three hours. And what that does is it really helps your digestive system, it helps your brain, it helps your nervous system, helps your blood sugar levels, helps everything uh, so that you won't build up a glucose deficit and end up having to binge later on that day. It also boosts mood and uh, is just overall beneficial for recovery. Yeah, I think you're so right about the regular eating because not only does it do all of the things that you just mentioned, but it also gets you to a place where you're not constantly thinking about food and puts you in a position where you can actually engage in therapy and you've got the energy to do that. And I think that is a, you know, that is probably the biggest myth of it. Well, I mean, maybe not the biggest, I think they're all pretty big myths, but that, you know, all eating disorder therapies need to be about regular eating. Um, no matter what you're struggling with, um, because that's how you heal your relationship with food, ultimately, um, and your body and, and everything else going on around that. So thank you so much. I enjoyed that incredible amount. Um, it was so wonderful to speak to you and dispel all of those myths, um, even though I had to really put myself in a difficult position sometimes to say the words out loud. I should have just held up a sign to you, but then nobody would be able to know. What I Um I'm offering a ultimate binge busters masterclass. I don't know when this is going to air, but I offer uh, it's a free masterclass. I offer them several times a year, and uh, if you just follow me or go to my website, you can find out more information about it.
Amazing. And I'll put the details for all of that in the show notes so that people can find that nice and easy. But yeah, thank you so much. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.